up episode 416 of Monster Kid Radio with the song Spirotonic. It comes from the band The Spirotones from their album Next Up, The Moon. You can find that over at thespirotones.bandcamp.com. They're a really cool surf band based out of Olverson in the UK, and they gave us permission to play this song on this episode of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook, and I am glad you're here because I've got another new voice to add to the mix here. I feel like lately I've been collecting new voices to put on the show, different people to put on the podcast, people you've never heard from before, but maybe people you've heard of. This week, we have Mike Bogue. Mike Bogue is a film historian, an author, a man who knows his kaiju and knows his atomic Monsters. So we're going to talk with him a little bit about Atomic Monsters, what makes an Atomic Monster, and he and I are going to do a top three list. It's been a little while since we've done a top three list. Well, he's going to tell me what his top three big bug monster movies are, and I'm going to share with him what mine are, and there are going to be some honorable mentions in the mix as well. And of course, because it's the first time he's been on the show, especially since it's the first time he's been on the show, we have to play a round of the Classic Five, just to kind of introduce Monster Kid Mike Bogue to the Monster Kid Radio audience. Also on the show this week, two of our favorite segments, Professor Frenzy's Bedtime Stories and Kenny's Look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. That's all happening in this episode. And of course, the trailers and the promos and the ad for my new book. That's all happening right after this. can't describe it. The hideous part of it is it's making the children obey its every command. The children are completely in its power. And we're in the power of the children. Space children, spreading a network of terror through a top secret missile base in a nation's desperate hour of decision. Space children, the dangerous pawns of a power so strange that no sentries can stop them. Why did you let those children inside here? Dr. Woman, what children? No rocket can rise anywhere in the world. Four, three, two, one, fire! destroy them. Get those kids out of there! Welcome to Planet 8. Every two weeks, the crew at Planet 8 Podcast explores the many worlds of science fiction, fantasy, superheroes, monsters, and more. We cover the latest movies and TV shows, as well as old favorites, too. Yeah, like Planet of the Apes. It's a manhouse! A Hey, guys, don't forget Star Trek. Fascinating. Or classic monsters like King Kong, Creature from the Black Lagoon, or Godzilla. <laughs> If it's nerdy or geeky, we'll probably be talking about it. 
So why don't you tune in and check us out? You can find us on iTunes or other fine podcast providers. Come join the conversation at our website, planet8podcast.blogspot.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. This is Planet 8 Podcast, signing off. End transmission. Warning. Godzilla versus The Thing. A shattering motion picture, not for the weak of heart. Here in all its astounding realism is a soul-shocking experience. How much terror can you stand? What was this thing of unbelievable and unequaled terror that challenged Godzilla to a battle of unhuman strength versus supernatural evil? Godzilla versus The Thing. See the war of the giants. See the birth of the world's most terrifying monster. See armies of the world destroyed by The Thing. The producers of Godzilla vs. The Thing issue warning to those who cannot take its full horror. To you with guts, you must see Godzilla vs. The Thing from the beginning in color scope from American International. Creatures with the Atom Ray. A motion picture shot full of thrills based on scientific facts described in leading national magazines. You'll be hypnotized. You'll be terrorized. You'll be paralyzed. See a dead man come from beyond the grave. See Columbia Pictures startling... Creature with the Atom Brain. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, Welcome to Professor Frenzy's Bedtime Stories, created especially for Monster Kid Radio. My name is Jerry Green. In this segment, I'm going to tell you some stories contained in the EC Horror Comics. Today's story is The Thing in the Swamp from The Haunt of Fear number 15, the May-June issue from 1950. It was written by Bill Gaines and Al Feldstein, and the art was by Al Feldstein. So sit back, relax, and prepare for another chilling tale. Once upon a time, in the dark and foreboding Okefenokee Swamp, there were two men in a boat crossing the murky waters. The pair had heard that no one that entered this portion of the swamp had ever been heard of again. They wanted to prove the rumor false. On the shore, an old man in tattered clothes shouted and waved his arms to try to get their attention. They made their way over to him. The old-timer warned them not to go any further because there was great danger. The two scoffed at him, but the man invited them into his hut to explain. He told them about a time several years ago, Professor Carl Ward, his daughter Marie, and Robert Colby, her fiancé, set up a laboratory in the swamp. Professor Ward believed he could create life from raw chemical and electrical currents. They tried different compounds, different voltages, different processes. However, time after time, their experiments failed. Months and months went by. They tried infusing the mixture with radium, uranium, ultraviolet light, sound waves, but time after time, their work ended in disappointment. Finally, Professor Ward became angry and threw the concoction out the window into the swamp water. Out in the murky depths, the mixture found the compounds it needed to come to life. It pulled in and devoured birds, fish, and even alligators. Back in the lab, Robert Colby had had enough. 
He wanted to leave the swamp and take his fiancée with him. Professor Ward argued with him, but to no avail. Marie decided to stay with her father and continue their work rather than leave with her husband-to-be. Furious at the betrayal, Colby left the lab and made his way across the dock. He looked back to see the building being devoured by the living swamp. Ward and Marie tried to escape, but were swallowed by the advancing muck. The old man finished telling his story. The two guests laughed off his warning as an old wives' tale and set back to their boat. The old man shouted after them and said he knew the story to be true because he was Robert Colby. The two laughed and rowed themselves across the swamp. But something emerged in front of their boat. They cried out in panic. It is the thing in the swamp. Well, I hope you enjoyed that gooey tale. As much as I like haunted castles and smartly dressed vampiric villains, there's something especially creepy about a deep, dark swamp. The monster here isn't visually interesting. How can a pile of swamp muck be shown as a compelling creature in a comic? However, the effective part of the tale is the frustration of the old-timer at being ignored and the twist where he is the one that survived the creature's attack. I wouldn't say that this reveal is a big shock to a modern reader, but with my Monster Kid hat on, it works just fine. The art is particularly well done, with the characters' faces. The old-timer and Professor Ward are particularly good. Their expressions are very clear, with frustration and anger conveyed perfectly. One panel shows just the head of the old-timer on a white background, and he looks crazy. But it turns out he's just frustrated that his warnings are ignored. The art works both ways. If you're interested in a copy of The Haunt of Fear, the book can be purchased on Amazon, and you can find a link to buy it on the MKR website. I hope you enjoyed the story. My name is Jerry Green, and you can find me on my podcast, The Professor Frenzy Show, where we talk about new indie comics and bat books for beginners, where we talk about historical Batman and Bat Family comics. You can also catch me on Twitter at Professor Frenzy. Search for Professor Frenzy on YouTube, where you can find The Professor Frenzy Show and some exciting projects we have coming up. Stay tuned, and thanks for listening. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy. The Human Paper. The strangest science fiction story ever told about man's deadliest enemy, the human vapor. Never before a power so dangerous. Never before an enemy so indestructible. Nothing on earth could stop him. The human vapor. Half beast, half man. Dr. Sano had said I'd be a superman. Instead, he had created the human vapor. Now I should be grateful to our doctor, shouldn't I? He did not do as he intended, yet he did give me supreme power now. I can have anything I choose, destroy anyone I care to, 
No prison bars could keep him in. No door could keep him out. The human vapor slips through every crack, through every opening, to terrify, to destroy, to kill. See the human vapor transform before your eyes from human form to vapor nightmare. The human vapor brings you a haunting legacy of fear, causing panic and riot and devastation. See this weird story of a superhuman power that menaces the world. Who can kill like an inhuman monster? but who loves like a man. Here for the first time, the most dangerous experiment in terror. See the disintegration of a human being into the deadliest vapor killer. Born of woman, but recreated by an evil science into an ectoplasmic horror to stagger your imagination. The human vapor will come to life and bring you the most terrifying experience in scientific history. The human vapor. Is he man or astral man? Human Vapor in living color on the giant screen. The Human Vapor. Vampires, werewolves, zombies. Yes, these things are real. But fortunately for those of us who can afford him, so is Mark Temple. And he's good. Real good. He's a former FBI agent turned freelancer with the knowledge and skills to eliminate your monster problems and his rates are negotiable. Monster Hunter for Hire, the first volume of the Supernatural Solutions, The Mark Temple Case Files, is now available in both ebook and paperback. Go to tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple to buy your copy of Derek M. Cook's latest book. Read about Mark Temple, the experienced professional now available to rid you of your supernatural ghoulish and monstrous pests. That's tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple. And don't worry, Mark Temple is discreet. Welcome to a night of total terror. Night of the living dead. Unliving flesh. The dead whose haunted souls hunt the living. The living whose bodies are the only food for these ungodly creatures. More shattering than your strangest nightmare. This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned. And don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of. 
like that pesky Van Helsing. Monster Kid Radio listeners, I love getting new voices in the mix here on the show, and I'm excited to invite Mike Bogue to Monster Kid Radio this week. Mike, how's it going? It's going very well, very well. And I'm excited about this show. Mike, I first became aware of, of who you are and what you do through your writing in G-Fan Magazine, and then over the years, I started looking you up online, seeing if there's anything else you'd done, and i Found you all over. Lots of Scary Monsters magazine articles, a couple of books, uh, the Atomic Drive-In book I love. Well, thank you. Are these some of the highlights that listeners should look up? Or like, What's your most recent book? Well, the most recent book is Apocalypse Then, American Japanese Atomic Cinema, which you had mentioned. And uh, and you're right. I uh, also Scary Monsters. I have a column. I've had it for seven years called Kaiju Corner. I guess it's obvious what I talk about there. But uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> Japanese giant monsters. But also non-kaiju films like uh, Human Vapor, The H-Man, etc. So the good stuff. Yes. Yes. Definitely. (laughs) I mentioned this on Facebook, and I I told you privately, and I want to say it here on the show, too, that uh, in the most recent issue of Scary Monsters, as of this recording, you contributed an article about your memories of seeing Night of the Living Dead in the theater, and not to bring it down, because I know Mm -hmm. it's kind of a depressing, a depressive kind of moment, but it was a very moving piece. So listeners, if you haven't read it, First of all, why not? Why are you not reading Scary Monsters magazine? But really, if you haven't read Mike's article in there about Night of the Living Dead, it's pretty moving. And uh, I know I've told you privately, I want to tell you on the show, it really kind of struck a chord with me. It was really well done. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. It was heartbreaking, actually, even thinking back then. And I was actually shocked. Uh, this was 81, 1981. Of course, that's showing my age and tell how old I was. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> It was the last thing I expected. You know, my friend and me, it would just feel great. We're going to, you know, pre-video days or just beginning of video, we're going to see Night of the Living Dead for the very first time and all excited. And then what I recount in the article happened and man, that was just, I just felt awful. But I appreciate that you, you appreciate the article. It's a little counter to what usually you think of as a monster memory in Scary Monsters. It's not a positive, upbeat one, which usually you know, is is what Scary Monsters goes for. But it was an experience I had, and, you know, I think it did reveal an an aspect of of America, uh, not just in Arkansas, where I live, but unfortunately in the country. But I hope we've come a long way since. I think we have come a long way since then, but I feel like we have still a long way to go. I hope so. And listeners, to be clear, Mike's not saying that he didn't enjoy the film. Uh, right. <laughs> it's the film experience that he yeah. writes about. So, yeah, put, put down the pitchforks and everything. I'm sure he <laughs> loves Night of the Living Dead. It's just, you know, just... <laughs> uh, but but it is, a, I think, an important thing to uh, to read. And like you said, it's, it's a part of what America was and in some places yeah. still is. So... Yeah. But not to bring things down. I mean, let, let's talk about something positive, like, you know, atomic monsters. Okay. Okay. <laughs> What would you define as an atomic monster? I mean, you've written about them a lot, so how right, would you describe right. them to people? It's a monster that is either created by atomic bombs, fallout, experiments, that kind of thing, and it almost always is going to stem from the 1950s. Not necessarily always, but that's really when it started. So to me, Atomic Age Monster uh, reflects, to some extent, the atomic anxiety that really flowered in the United States in the 1950s. And so, yes, that's a pretty broad definition. I thought that's what I would say. That's what I would say. A monster who's both derived from 
nuclear elements, like I said, either you know, test or experiment or whatever, that also reflects the atomic anxiety of that of that decade. One thing that you pointed out in Apocalypse Then uh, is that there definitely seems to be a difference between the American approach to atomic monsters and the Japanese approach to atomic monsters. Uh, the Japan has more of a a downbeat kind of ending to a lot of these things, whereas with the America, you know, always for triumphing. Uh, do you think that really just comes down to how World War II played out between the two countries? I do think so. Uh, both countries are on polar opposite sides. The United States bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and Japan was the recipient of that. And so far, the only recipients of, of nuclear weapons, hopefully nuclear weapons will never be used. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, because Japan, it happened to them. You read accounts of, especially like right after Hiroshima, you know, for, for my book, Apocalypse End, went back and, and read accounts. There were three standing hospitals, and it's just horrible what happened. And then the aftermath, you know, cancer and all those sorts of things. So they experienced that. We, uh, meaning the United States, on the other hand, we bombed them. They did surrender. So the United States at the time, I believe it was 80% of Americans were totally for bombing Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but we didn't feel it. And so I think to Japan, they had a greater appreciation of, of just how serious nuclear weapons are and uh, what they could do on a massive scale were the superpowers at the time to have gotten into a conflict. America, on the other hand, uh, we were the dominant world power and uh, much more optimistic. Uh, you know, American know-how can solve everything. And, uh, and especially the authorities in the 50s, the authorities were still pretty revered, meaning uh, government. And this is not to put down, when I say military. I'm all for the troops, always, of course. But, um, sure, yeah, sure. But, but just as a minor digression, at the, in the 1950s, uh, General Curtis LeMay was the commander of SAC, Strategic Air Command. And there is good evidence that he wanted to actually goad the Soviet Union into having a nuclear war because he thought we would win. Uh, it's that kind of attitude that existed in the U.S. that you wouldn't have never find that in Japan at the time. Just did not exist. In fact, two-thirds of the Japanese population uh, around the mid-50s signed petitions to end nuclear war testing. And fortunately, 1961, above-ground testing was, there was a treaty, so it was made illegal internationally. If, for example, Godzilla, I think that's a perfect example of first Godzilla movie. You look at Godzilla, you look at the beast from 20,000 fathoms, Godzilla is very nightmarish. And it doesn't have an upbeat ending, especially in the, the Japanese version, where uh, mm -hmm. Toxic Kimura actually says there could be more Godzillas. Whereas in Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, it's dead at the end. Uh, you know, we, we fired a radioactive isotope into his throat wound. It's gone. And I think that's another key difference in Japanese America. Japanese implied it's not over. It's ongoing. A lot of American films with uh, atomic monsters, it's over at the end of the film. One major exception would be them. Them ends with a question mark in terms of they're not really sure how things are going to go. In fact, I love the last line of the film, them. And in case listeners aren't are familiar, the, the film concerns giant ants created by nuclear tests and, and white sands. In 1945, maybe it's 1954. But after the ants have been killed in the LA storm drains and the heroes are watching them roast 
the main scientist in the movie, Edmund Glenn, says that, uh, I love this line, he says, when man entered the atomic age, he opened a door into a new world. What we eventually find in that new world, nobody can predict. And that's close to the Japanese spirit. In other words, it's not over. We're not sure what's going to happen. But that makes it different than most American films. Majority American films, like I said, in the beast from 20,000 fathoms, it's gone. Uh, other big bug films in, in the United States, Tarantula, for example, which I think is a, a wonderful film. It's dead. It's gone at the end. And again, you know, American know-how, well, specifically the American military has finished it off. So, yeah, I definitely see differences in the Japanese viewpoint and, and American viewpoints. I think it's pretty obvious, too, if you start watching something like Godzilla, especially the Japanese cut. Um, you oh, know, yeah. King of the Monsters, not not as much. I mean, it's still mm-hmm. there, but with the Japanese cut, uh, the original Gojira, it is a terrifying film. And I know as the Godzilla films progress, they, they kind of lightened up a little bit. You know, he becomes the protector of the world. Not as much as, say, like Gamera did, but, you know, they do lighten up a little bit. But the original Godzilla, it's a flat-out horror movie on top mm-hmm. of everything else. It's horrific. Uh, you know, right down to the bit with the uh, the woman telling her child, we're going to be with your father soon, you know, that, and knowing that the father is gone. And it's just heartbreakingly mm. tragic, some of the things that happen in that film. Yeah, I agree. Whereas in Tarantula, we just drop napalm on it and call it good. Yes. So, <laughs> you know, which I love too. I mean, I love them both. So don't get me wrong. And we'll talk about the movies that we love. But before we get too much further into this, Mike, there is something that we do here on Monster Kid Radio. Anytime somebody comes on, we have a game that we play. It's called the Classic Five. Now, what the Classic Five is, is I've got a deck of cards here. Each one of these has a this or that. Which movie do you prefer style question? They all have to do with classic monster movies or genre cinema. There are no wrong answers. It's just kind of a way to start a conversation. Not that we have trouble starting a conversation here, obviously, but it's an icebreaker. You ready to play the Classic Five, Mike? Oh, absolutely. Here we go. So five cards, five questions. Card number one. Mike, what was the most recent monster movie that you watched? Excellent question. I'm going to have to think a minute. Last monster movie that I watched. It was probably... I watched Monsters of the Earl Invasion of Astro Monster not too long ago. Probably the last one. Now, giant entertainment. Giant terror. Monster Zero. Do you see anything? From a planet 50 million miles beyond the stars came a strange message. Lend us your Rodan and Godzilla to fight our Monster Zero. And the most dreaded creatures ever to walk our planet are lifted into outer space. The stage is set for the mightiest battle ever seen by the universe in Monster Zero. Right on, that's a good one. That's a good one. All right, card number two. Who's your favorite mad scientist? Probably Lionel Atwill. Although I thought Charles Lawton in Island of Lost Souls was, was great. I mean, I know he didn't go on to do other mad scientists, but I thought he was, nah, he was terrific. So I'd probably choose him, even though it was just one film. I just thought he did it so well. There are no wrong answers, man. And that one, he's good. He's terrifying and he's good. Yeah. I wish he had done more. Yeah, me too. But more mad scientist roles, anyway. He's a phenomenal actor, but as a mad scientist, man, he brought so much to the table. Oh, yeah, definitely. Card number three. Ooh, who never appeared in a kaiju film, but you wish they had? John Wayne. <laughs> That's just kind of wow. off the, off the cuff. 
You gotta admit that would have been different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, just the juxtaposition of, of imagining him in a Godzilla film, that would be so different. Maybe being a little more serious, Peter Cushing, um, you know, excellent actor and uh, versatile. And I could easily see him, you know, having played an American scientist in a Japanese film. And as you know, Nick Adams in Frank Stankocker's world played an American scientist. And uh, Russ Tamblin did so in War of the Gargantuas. I could easily see Peter Cushing maybe playing a radiological expert, you know, who brought, he's brought in and collaborates with one of the Japanese scientists on defeating whatever the current menace is. But I still think John Wayne would be fun to see to have seen in a kaiju film. <laughs> That'd be amazing. See, this is how I know you and I are going to get along because Peter Cushing is right up there, favorite oh, actor. Oh, oh yeah. For my money, he can do no wrong, and I would love to. Oh man, it would have been great to see him in a kaiju film of some sort. And I know we're in agreement here. He was an incredible actor. I, I think by the mainstream, you know, and I know this is often common. But I think among the mainstream, maybe not as appreciated as he could have been. On the other hand, Leonard Malton uh, always gave him good reviews in his film. But I just thought he was amazing. I mean, to me, he was uh, Van Helsing. And I'm a little biased mm-hmm. when I've seen movies since the, since uh, Horror Dracula and Brides of Dracula. Because good as some of the Van Helsings have been... To me, Peter Cushing just represented Van Helsing. Oh, yeah. He, he's the man of action. He's the man of knowledge. He's, he's the man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's the man. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, you start talking about him being like a scientist that comes in to help. I'm thinking I'm getting like shades of Island of Terror, you know, yeah, that, that kind yeah. of role that he played there where he comes in and knows. Yeah. Oh, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it. Some <laughs> fan fiction writer needs to write this for yeah, well, us. Well, that would this be pretty great. cool. Yeah, that would be cool. Or, or John Wayne. I'll take that, too. That sounds good, too. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, card number four. What's your favorite classic 3D movie? Probably it came from outer space. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Richard Carlson. I'm sure you'd all like to know something about the new entertainment miracle, Third Dimension. What it is, what it does. Well, the best way I can describe it to you is to tell you that it makes the screen absolutely real and alive. People, objects, landscapes take on a depth and a dimension such as they have in real life. And it has an added quality. Objects actually seem to come out of the screen. So real they almost touch you. Creating the most dramatic impact that the screen has ever known. Coming to an incredible climax when a molten meteoric spaceship from another planet rushes out of the heavens right at you. Of course, these illustrations are only a pale suggestion of the real thing. It it can't be described. It's got to be seen and experienced. And I must add that even without 3D, it came from outer space is a picture that you'll long remember for its blending of science and fiction, for its eerie terror, and for its story of an invasion from another planet that's almost beyond imagining. Tell you from its size and its appearance, this thing came from outer space. I even have reason to believe that there's some form of life in it. What do you want? What are you doing? Let me see you as you really are. I've never actually had the chance to see. In fact, I've never had the chance to see a 3D film. But I came from outer space. I think it's a, a very good science fiction film. Now. 
speaking of that, and, and I'm sure you'd read the dam was originally going to be filmed in 3D. Um, oh, I didn't the, know that. Yeah, uh, but the idea was scuttled. It's always made me wonder, well, what would it have looked like? I guess not that different on you know maybe a TV screen, but but I've always wondered what it would have been like. And in fact, I read uh, one reason they have the mock-ups of ants in them. Uh, they had two full-bodied ones and then some front and head mock-ups uh, is because they were thinking about, you know, this could be, th- I, I remember uh, they had the idea of the antennas going out over the audience, stuff like that, but uh didn't happen, but, but it came from outer space. It was, it was a first-rate film. Second choice probably be Revenge of the Creature. I think that would uh, I, I, the sequels go. I, I liked it quite a bit. Really, over the first creature film? No, <laughs> oh, okay. I can't say okay. that. But I, I <laughs> and this is just idiosyncratic. I like it as much, and I know it puts me in the minority, and that's fine. But I, there's just something about it. Uh, it's just as, to me as quintessential 1950s American monster movie. And uh, I know objectively, no, it's not as good as Creature from the Black Lagoon on a number of levels. But I still, <laughs> just on a, I wouldn't exactly call it a guilty pleasure, but just as a pre- purely subjective, it, it's actually one of my favorite 50s monster films. I don't know if you've listened to a lot of episodes of Monster Kid Radio before, but you are checking all the boxes for me. I love <laughs> Creature from the Black Lagoon. That one is my favorite film. And Revenge of the Creature is right up there because it's mm-hmm. got John Agar. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. There we go. All right, yeah. final card, card number five. If you could swap places with any character from a classic monster movie, who would it be? It would probably be, in this island Earth, the American scientist. Rex reason that I, with him because, I mean, he, he gets to go on an incredible adventure. I mean, he goes to outer space. He goes to this other planet you know, where all this exciting stuff is happening. Uh, that, I think, would be really fun. So switching places with Rex Friesen, you get to hang out with Faith. And we're, yeah, yeah. I well, there's that, that too. There's that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little romantic interest. So, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, you know. All right, well, that was the Classic Five. How do you feel, Mike? Well, I feel very good. Awesome. I think you passed. I think you win. We're good. Okay. Good. Glad to hear all right, so let's talk a little bit more about these these big bug monster movies because there's just something primally cool about seeing a monster movie with giant bugs. We already talked a little oh, bit yeah. about them, and you know, a tarantula came up, and there's a handful of others. I mean, it's a subgenre in the monster movie field that you've written about in your books and in over the years you've brought up uh, in Atomic Drive-In. It comes up quite a bit, and. I mean, John Agar fought one, so of course, you know, I'm going to love those movies too. (laughs) These are just fantastic movies, Mm -hmm. and I thought it would be great to have you on the show because you love them as much as I do, if not more, and talk about some of our favorites, kind of do a top three list. Okay. And and I've prepared a list of my top three favorite giant big bug monster movies. You did as well. I'm sure there's going to be some overlap here, and we might even have some honorable mentions, but I thought I'd kick it off with my number third pick. I'm going to go to Japan, and I'm going to bring up Rodan because it's got those mega nulons in there. And those are giant bugs. They are. You know? They are. And it's hard to not look at, especially 50s kaiju films, and say, hey, there's an atomic influence in there too. So I love Rodan. It's probably my favorite non Godzilla Toho kaiju. Monster Up is a skyscraper. When he moves, the whole earth quivers and quakes, and an abyss of horror opens up. See these prehistoric beasts emerge from the bowels of the earth after 200 million years to devastate mankind. 
supersonic jets cannot catch him. Nothing can stop him. Nothing escapes this monstrous beast of evil. I love the film. I love the character. And really looking forward to what they do in the new Godzilla with the Rodan character. Uh, I, I feel like there's not enough Rodan out there for me. And the film overall is also scary. I mean, before it starts getting all kid-friendly. A little Lovecraftian in bits as well, which really speaks well to me, mm-hmm. too. So my number three pick would be Rodan. Okay, okay. What would your number three be, Mike? My number three would be the monster that challenged the world. Ooh. An upheaval of nature tears loose a creature out of the nightmare of time. Spawned by an earthquake on the bed of the ocean, a reptilian, earth-shaking beast of the sea. The monster that challenged the world. My tank. My tank. What's wrong? Blake's tank is caught in the undergrowth. Died right in front of me. I couldn't help him. Talk sense. What's down there? I don't know. I never saw anything like it before. It's the size of a dinosaur, and ten times more terrifying. Hurling the horrors of the unknown at every living thing. I first saw it in the mid-1960s when I was a wee lad, as they say, and it was terrific. Uh, the monster in it was wonderful. At that time, study the art. And I was not disappointed. When I was a kid, you know, I would rate a monster film by how cool is the monster. And occasionally I'd be disappointed. That I was not disappointed a bit. But when I saw it later as a teenager, I appreciated it. It's got a good script. It's very competently made, um, very low-key, good acting. And uh, Hans Conried is in it as Dr. Rogers, one of my favorite character actors. And also as an adult, uh, one thing I like, Tim Holt is the, the hero at the end of the film where he's pulled the steam tunnel away and he's firing it at the the creature, the monster. He actually looks terrified. Now, I don't know if that was in the script or that was just him adding it, but I thought, well, that's cool because almost anyone would be terrified. But like I said, love the monsters in it. It's actually, you know, I've read they only had one actual thing. There's one part where Hans Conry tells us that one of these monsters could lay thousands of eggs and therefore, you know, attack the world. Now that title in a, in a way, maybe a little too much monster that challenged the world. You know, it's not really the world, but in that sense it is. In fact, Hans Conrad says, uh, can you imagine an army of these things descending on one of our cities? And of course, any monster kid could imagine that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, but that would be mine. That would be my third. So with Rodan, they're, they're kind of like giant dragonfly larvae. What would you call the Big bug in uh, the monster of the challenge world. It's kind of like a, a snail mollusk kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, mollusk. Uh, the one thing I thought was odd when I first saw the film in the mid '60s is when they they show the film and and you see snails. Because I remember even saying out loud, my brother and I was watching these things together, and I said that doesn't look like a snail. But um, <laughs> yeah, I would call it a mollusk. I think that's a good good designation. Yeah, it's a good film, too. It's got a great score, too. I love the music uh, in, in all of these oh, films, yeah. but the oh, music yeah. and the monster that challenged the world. 
I mean, it's just good. <laughs> I don't know yeah, what else to is. say there. It's, it just, it's, it's it good. And I do like uh, Conrad. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Dr. Rogers. Is that the character's yeah. name in the film? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, an- another excellent scientist type hero in these films. Oh, yeah. 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 So for my second pick, if I'm counting down for number two, and I've been really struggling here with what my number one and number two are going to be. And mm. I think today and this may change tomorrow but i think today uh i'm gonna put tarantula in there no it's not Mm. quite atomic it's from that era but it's not like nuclear energy made the bug made the 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 thing i love john agar uh i am a huge fan of what he does and for me put john agar in a movie you're halfway there already even science was stunned the new atomic miracle should have been mankind's greatest boon instead when such power to cause phenomenal growth proved dangerously unstable, man was confronted with his most shocking blunder. The isotope triggered our nutrient into a nightmare. A blunder that transformed a tiny insect into the hundred-foot spider that was now ravaging the panic-stricken countryside. Tarantula is one of these quintessential universal giant monster movies from the 50s. It's got great music, a lot of callbacks to Creature from the Black Lagoon, so, you know, I'm there. Mara Corday mm-hmm. is phenomenal. She's one of my favorite actresses from this era. So, I'm probably going to go with Tarantula mm-hmm. here. And, and it's an early role for Clint Eastwood at the very end. He's the one that drops a napalm. I believe he's not Bill, though, which is interesting. Yeah. Because when you hear his voice, you know who that is, you know, once he became a star. And I hope I'm not rushing, but what's interesting is Tranchel is also my number two. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we we kind of coincide there uh, for all the reasons you've said. And uh, I also think the pacing is really good. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't lag. I, I think the last 20 minutes are especially tight. And also, I like John Agar. And, and also, you know, it's hard to kill the giant spider dynamite. doesn't do anything. Uh, you know, it's crawling towards the city. The, the missiles don't seem to do much, but then the napalm fries it. But I like one scene where Cranchler crawls over a hill. It's at night after John Agar has rescued Maricorde. The police captain tells two of his men, you boys slow it down You know, while they go to town. I'm thinking, yeah, right, dude. Uh, <laughs> they're supposed to, these two guys, you know, I mean, they spray it with machine gun fire, but, but they wind up as Tarantula Chow. But it, yes, Tarantula is a, yeah. Very good. So we're we're definitely definitely in sync there. I also thought the effects were good. Oh yeah. Especially for the time. Mm-hmm. And uh the, I like little details like you can see the shadow beneath the the giant spider um as it crawls along. Just you know, really good effects for the time. Um but, uh, yeah, I'm with you there. Cranch uh, was my number two as well. Yeah, the visual effects, uh, the optical effects they did with the spider, and then even the makeup effects they did with the acromegaly mm. uh, at the very mm-hmm. beginning of the film when we're seeing the results of that uh, there as well. It's a nice blend of the, the classic monster makeup that you expect from Universal, but then you've got mm-hmm. the optical effects to make the giant monsters, the giant bugs. Uh, I really like the performances here, and you mentioned the pacing, mm. and I'm surprised we haven't mentioned his name yet, Jack. 
Jack Arnold was the director of this, and he directed, yes. uh, you know, It Came From Outer Space, which you mentioned earlier. I mean, mm-hmm. just, he was such a phenomenal science fiction director for Universal, and even some non-Universal stuff like The Space Children. Just there's something about the way he was able to make the science fiction elements just kind of jump mm-hmm. along without really getting too bogged down with the science. I mean, we have a little mini science lesson in a lot of these movies, but it's, it doesn't bog the movie down. I think Arnold's films are, are great as well. Um, my favorite of his, and I hope I'm not digressing. No, much, no, it's fine. Incredible, uh, incredible Shrinking Man. I mean, oh, yeah. And, and to me, it works on so many levels. Uh, but just on a pure, uh, again, when I saw it, I think I was in second grade, the the spider scene, of course, that, that was very arresting. I just pure monster stuff. It's one of the scariest things, I think. Well, excellent script. Mm-hmm. And uh, a mature kind of film, not afraid of its subject matter, doesn't talk down to it. But uh, what, you know, actually shows us what, what happens to this guy is, is the, the, his familiar world literally is leaving him and the more he shrinks it changes changes his viewpoint and the viewpoint for example is cat butch <laughs> which tries to eat him for lunch <laughs> yeah but as a kid it was that spider scene i also i won't give it away for anybody that has seen it. i love the the final uh couple of minutes of incredible shrinking man now i know that some fans don't like that ending in fact i taught a class or actually was asked to guest teach a class on uh, atomic grade B monster movies, believe it or not. <laughs> and uh, I, I brought this up, and they had watched it. The teacher had, had them watch Incredible Shrinking Man. And I asked, uh, okay, show of hands, how many of you liked the ending? And there may have been just two or three. How many of you did not like the ending? Because everybody else. Oh, wow. The teacher also said she didn't like the ending. She said, no, it's just too downbeat. I don't actually take it as downbeat. But anyway, like I said, I don't want to give it away for anyone who hasn't seen it. But an excellent film. And like I said, Jack Arnold, terrific script by Richard Matheson. Yeah, if you didn't mention him, I was going to. Richard Matheson, a phenomenal horror and science fiction author and screenwriter. Listeners, if you're not familiar with Richard Matheson, if you don't think you're familiar with Richard Matheson, you're wrong. Because he did so much mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, for the movies mm-hmm. that we mm-hmm. as Monster Kids love. And I'm going to side with you regarding the ending of The Incredible Shrinking Man. I think it is... It's a little downbeat, sure, but I do like that it still has an element of, you know, all is not lost. I'm still going to, well, mm-hmm, yeah, we're dancing mm-hmm. around the ending, you know, <laughs> and, and I think most people yeah. have probably seen it, but I think you and I are on the probably. same page here regarding that. I love the performance by Grant Williams on this. I think it's the strongest genre work. Oh, yeah. And, you know, we're on this journey with him, and it's great. Yeah, I, you know, it's too bad he didn't get a lot of successively good roles because I thought he and Randy Stewart are, are really good oh, yeah. as the two leads. I mean, it even sadly explores the sexual tension between them as he shrinks. Yeah. And that could have been mishandled. <laughs> you know, it could have just been ludicrous or I like the way that is, that is treated. Uh, come back to the ending. Just what you're saying. I absolutely agree with. I, I think it does have a sense of wonder Yeah, that to me is one of the, Best things in science fiction or fantasy. Uh, not always easy to achieve, I don't think, but when it is, you know, and I, I think it happens to be in, in an incredible shrinking man. Again, we're going to get along just fine, Mike. <laughs> Especially since our number twos match up. Now, before I tell you my number yeah, one, and I, I that's pretty cool. before I tell you my number one, and I assume it's probably right there with you. I'm just, I'm just going to guess. I'm going to give you an honorable mention. One of my honorable mentions here, uh, if it was like a top four list, I'd probably mention the black scorpion. 
which I really enjoy as well, partly because Mira Corday is fantastic in it. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, but I'm also yeah. a big fan of Richard Denning because of the creature connection. And, and uh, you know, he was also in uh, Creature with the Atomic Brain or the Atom Brain, uh, a big fan of what he brought, brings to the table and, and really enjoyed his performance in that. Plus, it's another giant spider thing. And I kind of like the giant spider-ish, giant arachnid monster mm. element. <laughs> so mm. the Black Scorpion is right up there with me. And there was a great Blu-ray that came out of that a couple years back that I highly recommend just because it's, you know, it's a Black Scorpion. Did you have any others that you couldn't make fit into a top three list? I know it's kind of like an amazing coincidence, as they say, the Black Scorpion. Really? <laughs> and actually, I, I wrestled with it in the monster that challenged the world as number three. Now, I can say as an eight-year-old, I, I happened to see several monster movies on TV when I was eight. The Black Scorpion was one of my very favorites. The scorpions, the the, the cavern sequence. Oh, man. You said where the trapdoor spider chases the little boy and scorpion attacking the worm. And, and especially the when they derailed the train. Just incredible. As a kid, it was like, this is so fulfilled my expectations and actually exceeded them. Uh, just wonderful effects. Of course, Willis O'Brien and Pete Pierce. I have read at that point, Willis O'Brien wasn't doing as much of the work, but just great stop motion stuff. Oh, it's it's one of the last things that he did that he worked on, isn't it? Yeah. There was the giant behemoth. and. Mm-hmm. and Again, I want to really digress, but then there was his idea for a King Kong versus Frankenstein. I'm sure you're familiar with that, oh, yeah. and, and then how that how that became right in a roundabout way, King Kong versus Godzilla. His work on the Black Scorpion. I mean, there's a reason why we talk about Willis O'Brien today. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think Harry Hudson probably gets more attention, and rightfully so. You know, he he kind of built right. on what O'Brien started, but O'Brien was a pioneer. You know, I'm glad the Black Scorpion happened. I would have liked to have seen O'Brien get a little bit more prestige work you know, towards the end of his career. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. You know, it's kind of how Hollywood worked at the time. Um, but yeah, the Black Scorpion is just solid. It's not directed by Arnold, though, but it does have good pacing. No. Uh, I think so. Yeah. I, Edward Ludwig, is that the director's name? Yes. And occasionally, uh, used to when I look in movie books, they not genre movie books, just mainstream movie books, mm-hmm. they give it a bad... Uh, I remember one of them said lowercase thriller. Of course, I've always liked the film. Uh, I've never thought it was bad. So I'm always a little puzzled when, you know, somebody says, oh, you know, acting and everything's not that good. I totally disagree. Mm -hmm. And and Richard Denning, it's interesting you mentioned him. Uh, Yeah, I liked him as well. I know Bill Warren and keep watching the skies says to him, Richard Denning doesn't look like he could be a hero, but I don't agree. yeah, you know, I think he, like you're saying, Black Scorpion handles that role very well. Also, Creature with Adam Brain. Mm-hmm. And and he is a villain, of course, in, in a Creature from the Black Lagoon, but uh, I think one of the underrated monster movie actors. I think that's why I like him so much, is that he plays the villain in Creature mm-hmm. from the Black Lagoon, but he's one of the lead heroes in things like Day the World mm-hmm. Ended or Black Scorpion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he had mm-hmm. the range and could do both believably. You could really despise him and kind right. of cheer when the creature takes him out in the in Black Lagoon. But you're wanting him to survive the day the world ended because he's such a good guy. Plus, he was married to Evelyn Akers, so he's got a connection to classic right. Universal, you know? Right. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But, uh... But yeah, I uh, I definitely agree with you on Danny. Uh, one of the other things that I love about, man, we'll get to our number ones, which I think is probably the same. But one of the other things that I love about Black Scorpion, and this is one of the things that I love about watching classic 
genre cinema or just classic film in general is that not only does it have the great monster threat and some really scary sequences you mentioned the cavern uh, scene in Black Scorpion but you also get a little bit of a a cultural look at what things were like in the 50s Mm. for Americans working Mm. and living in Mexico and the combination of those cultures coming together and I've said this before on the show repeatedly one of the things I love about these films is that it's it's kind of like a, a time capsule. It's a, it's a, a look at what society was like during a particular time. In the background, these movies are, are documentaries of what things were like society-wise, mm. what the mores were, what the traditions were, how these people lived. Yeah, there's a giant monster running around, but if you really look at it, how does Richard Denning interact with the uh, the locals and in the relationship he has with the Mexicans while he's down there? And it's just really fascinating to me to see a film like this still stay true, I assume, to what those relationships might be like. I think that's an excellent point that a lot of these films, they and especially there, because as you said, that's that's Americans interacting with a different culture, mm-hmm. uh, can say a lot about Americans at the time. And, and I agree that the films in general can say, for example, uh, in Tarantula, mm-hmm. and I've, I've got this in my book, but I, uh, it's a pretty high optimistic viewpoint there was what could even be considered naive viewpoint maybe that very trusting for example in the film when john agar i believe uh you know says you need to get hold of the air force and they do and the air force doesn't say yeah right or, you know giant spot no they they send the the jets i think you can see that in a lot of uh american especially Tom and monster films in the 50s that basically the authorities were trusted i mean it was pre-vietnam uh, pre all the things that happened in the 60s and then Watergate in the 70s. So I I think they show a kind of trust Americans had in its institutions, which wasn't intentional. Like you said, it's it's there because that, I think, was one of the dominant attitudes at the time. You know, that's interesting, too, uh, because, yeah, once things kind of get to the Vietnam era, we do start seeing the authorities, the police don't believe the kids who thought they saw a monster somewhere. You do see that creep up in some 50s movies like The Blob. The police don't believe Mm -hmm. the world's Mm -hmm. oldest teenager, Steve McQueen, saying that he saw something. But uh, (laughs) um, but, yeah, you do see that for the most part that the authorities are to be trusted and and will actually help, whereas you get later on. We don't trust them nearly as much. So, yeah, one of the things that I – and man, we keep going back to the previous movies we just talked about, Tarantula. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of Mara Corday. I mean, I've made that clear in previous episodes of the show <laughs> and online. I really like her. And not just because she's attractive, but I felt like she was a very strong mm-hmm. actress as well. Mm-hmm. And while she does have some, I don't know, maybe sexist – traits well maybe not sexist maybe the filmmakers were a little bit more sexist in regards to her portrayal like there's one bit where she's like i'm a scientist but hey a girl's got to get her hair done you know i mean it's kind of like uh, you know let's let's give her more agency than that but overall i feel like she's still a strong character in the film and another reason why i respond to it so well yeah i agree and and i think you're right i mean the the way scripts were written women sometimes didn't have a lot to do Right, uh, and not just in in you know American monster movies. I think in movies in general, but or American movies in general anyway. Mm-hmm. But that was kind of common. Yeah. Mm. Uh, did you have any other honorable mentions before we talk about our number one pick? I did actually. Okay, it's Mothra. But the reason I I ultimately decided I'm not going to count it as an atomic monster film. To me, it's more like a live action fairy tale. Oh, okay. The film. I don't think of it as science fiction, even I think of it as fantasy. You have this country, Relicica, 
there is no real Verlisica, you know, in, in actuality. Uh, <laughs> many have said it's supposed to be a combination of America and Russia. The way the film is done, you know, wonderful color. But to me, it's like a fantasy. And so I don't think of it as a big boat film per se. I think it was trying to do different things. And of course, its monster has a motive. And it's not, you know, to eat as many people as it can. Uh, it wants to rescue the two infant island fairies who've been kidnapped and are now being exploited by the villain Jerry Ito. I would still consider it a runner-up. I think of it more of as a, uh, like I said, fairy tale, uh, daikaiju type thing, rather than a traditional big book film. I mean, I think a lot of it comes down to even how the movie was uh, promoted. I mean, some of the taglines, ravishing a universe for love, that's not something Godzilla did, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you exactly, know? yeah. Yeah. I can see that. I, I think Mothra is also pretty important in the whole kaiju thing because so many of these monsters are so lizard or reptilian-like. You know, Godzilla, Rodan, right. Varan, they all look like giant lizards or dinosaurs or whatever. Mothra is a giant moth. But yes. Mothra still gets to hang out with these, these guys. And that says something, I think, that a moth, <laughs> a giant moth is, is held in the same regard as things like Godzilla, these things that are obviously reptilian and, and potentially aggressive. I, I like that a lot about Moth Mothra. And I love the relationship between Mothra and the two, uh, the peanuts, you know, the, t the mm -hmm, two, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. two, two girls. I love that. Yeah, me too. Uh, and you hit upon the other thing. I mean, what's different is they, there are those two fairies and it, is going to rescue them. And, and to me, that's another fantasy element that you, you simply wouldn't find had found in an American monster film at that time. Maybe twist it just a little bit and Mothra becomes the hero in the film just a little bit. That's... In a sense, yeah. 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 Whereas I don't think you could do that with the original Gojira. <laughs> no, you'd have to twist really hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I only had the one honorable mention. I only had Black Scorpion because I didn't even think about Mothra in this context. So, mm -hmm. and, and, mm -hmm. What you brought up is probably why. But my number one pick, you could probably guess what it is. Listeners can probably guess what it is. I'm going with them. Mm. I have mm -hmm. to go with mm -hmm. them. It's the one giant big bug monster movie from this era that a lot of people will say it feels like a universal monster movie, but it's got so much more going for it because of the ending, like you said. Uh, the effects are phenomenal. The sound. Mm -hmm. The sound mm -hmm. the ants make. Mm. I'm an audio guy. You know, I do sound effects for film. I do podcasting. I love sound being used as a way to convey emotion and story. And them gives me chills when you hear that sound. I want that sound on my phone just so <laughs> I could use that as a ringtone. I think that'd be fun, but kind of terrifying at the same time. What, what's your number one? It them. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. I mean, we're, we're, we're insane. Watch out for them, a menace never known to man or beast before, an endless horde of crawling, crushing, gigantic creatures, so horrifying there was no word to describe them. Watch out for them, watch out for Warner Brothers' screaming new shock sensation, them. Yes, I saw them, they were huge and scaly and they had gigantic jaws and, and then one came at me. Kill one and two take its place. This is the endless onslaught of them clawing up out of the earth from mile-deep catacombs. See them! The most astounding journey into terror ever taken. Starring James Whitmore, Edmund Gwen, Joan Weldon, and James Arness. 
Them. It's the grandfather of Big Buck films. That sound effect, I agree, was wonderful when I first saw the film. And that was when I was in second grade. Got to, like I said, I got to see a lot of films during that year on TV. The sound, when it, it happens, and you know, you have the two characters, James Whitmore and the other guy, pa- uh, pass it off, William Shallard, pass it off as though it's it's the wind. And, you know, as a kid, I'm thinking, that, the wind, I happen to live in West Texas at the time, and we had a lot of wind. I thought, that's not how the wind sounds. I mean, you know as the audience it's something scary, but uh-huh. I, you hadn't seen. And, and I, I, th- I guess I got to see it in optimal conditions because I didn't know what we were going to see. So that just seemed very eerie. Um, I agree that that sound very effective and terrifying with with the little girl. Yes. Uh, just yes. wow, her performance and her, the catatonic state they find her in. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you really saw a lot of children in danger or having been mm-hmm. affected that much right. in this era, and it's just heartbreaking and. Hmm. Yeah, because you think about, like, when I saw it as an adult, and of course, as an adult, mm-hmm. you know, I, I saw things I didn't see as a kid. It might say it's very sad. I mean, her parents are, are dead, which is awful. And, you know, she has witnessed this. And you're right. Most films that that, if maybe, I don't know if I could say all, most films did not put kids in jeopardy. Uh, we mentioned a minute ago Black Scorpion. Of course, there is a little boy, but you don't really think the spider's going to get him, and it doesn't. Them is actually, in some ways, kind of grim. Um, like you said, the little girl and her fate. And I, I love the, as an adult, again, I got this apocalyptic sense. Um, for example, when Edmund Gwynn says in the movie that, I can't remember the exact line, but within a year, if we don't you know, find the queen ants that flew off to make other nests, man as a dominant species could be extinct. Very apocalyptic. And I like the way, again, as an adult, that it mirrors the, what was happening in the atomic age at the time. The ants multiply rapidly. Of course, there's nuclear proliferation. And I just mentioned the ants can exterminate us in a year, according to Dr. Medford. We knew that nuclear weapons could do so in a short time as well. I like the script. I think it's better than, not that I'm putting down other big bug scripts, but I think it's a little better. It does some things I really like. You mentioned Mara Corday a few minutes ago and, and how she was given the more, and, and most actresses were given very traditional roles for that time. Joan Weldon, though, when James Whitmore and James Arnest go down in the ant's nest after they poison it with cyanide, she gets to go with them. She acts just as professional as they are. She doesn't scream. And, and then at the end, when they're going through the storm drains in Los Angeles to find out where the ants are, she shotgun in one of the jeeps, yeah. <laughs> and and that actually the, now I know she does scream when the when the ant appears over the, well, the first time you see one of them, but but on the other hand, actually James Arness himself screams later in the film. True, <laughs> he, he actually does. And you know, as an adult, I realized, wow, that's unusual. There probably is, but I can't offhand think of another '50s monster movie where it's the hero. Now there may be other male characters who might scream, but the hero actually screams, and. Uh, thought those were, were really nice touches. I'm trying to think of any, and the only other time I can think of a, a male character screaming, I can't think of anything from the 50s. The only thing that's coming to mind is like uh, in The Mummy, at the beginning of The Mummy, when the guy sees Boris oh, Karloff. Yeah. But, but that's in mm. the 30s, and it's not quite the same, and he's not as prominent a character in the film. Huh. Listeners, if there's any others that you can think of, I'd love to hear about it, because... It is kind of fascinating to think about that they did have 
the guy do it too. Huh. Yeah. But it is a strong screenplay. So, I mean, and there, it makes both characters feel more human and more full. I think so. And, uh, you know, like I said, I got up as an adult. As a kid, again, it was just giant ants. It's really cool. And uh, the various set pieces. I, I remember my brother and I especially liked when they were on the ship. And actually, you don't see a whole lot there. But it was, I felt like we were, you know, as a kid, I was seeing a whole lot. Of course, brother and I loved the storm drain sequence where the you know, army's mm-hmm. fighting the ants. I thought that was first grade. I mean, it's just overall a solid film. I don't know what oh, yeah, else more yeah. I can say here that, <laughs> that Mike and I haven't already talked about. I'm sure most listeners have seen the film. If you haven't, if you've been avoiding it or you just haven't gotten around to it, listeners, you got to put it at the top of the list of to watch because it is <sighs> solid. It is affecting. It's effective. Uh, the script is great. The direction is brisk and the characterizations are full. I mean, these are real characters dealing with giant ants, which I think kind of grounds the film too. It makes it feel mm-hmm. a little bit more realistic than say. Right. I mean, I like Tarantula. I like Tarantula mm-hmm. a lot, sure. but I feel like on the realism scale, them seems to be more how we would really deal with it. I read somewhere that when, and then Gordon Douglas, the director, of course, done mainstream films. At first, they thought the concept was humorous. Not intentionally, they just thought, well, that's just so over the top, but as they started making the film, the director got a lot more serious about it. And I understand so did the actors working on it. We're just used to monster movies in the sense of uh, giant monsters, as opposed sure. to the sense of you know the classic horror 30s and 40s. We're used to them all over the place. Well, you know, as you know, at that point, they were still fairly rare. For example, I don't think actors now in monster films at all think, oh, this is silly. No, it's it's an accepted genre. But yeah, I did read at the time initially the filmmakers were like, well, that's kind of silly. But as they did it, they understood the gravity of it, especially the nods to what was going on in, in terms of nuclear proliferation in the real world. Mm, yeah. And there are so many giant bug monster movies out there that we've just kind of really scratched the oh, surface. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You, you can even pull on something like, say, Killers from Space, where you've got the giant bugs underground mm, that Peter Graves mm-hmm, runs by mm-hmm. over and over and over again. Sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. There's so many out there. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. It's a fun subgenre to look at. And when you start to consider where they came from, the atomic background with the, with the Cold War not having started yet, we're still dealing with the fallout of World War II and what could happen if somebody dropped a bomb on us and what happened when we mm-hmm. did drop a bomb in Japan. It's just kind of interesting to see where these things came from and kind of place that in context uh, with what was happening historically across the world. I love these films and even a modern day big bug movie is going to get my attention at least to give it a Mm -hmm. shot. Mm -hmm. Might not love it as much as say like the black scorpion or Mm -hmm. tarantula or them, but, but I'll still give it a shot. I've had a blast chatting with you, Mike. This has been so much fun and I'm so glad that we got you on the show. I'd love to have you back on down the line to talk about maybe another movie or another topic or maybe even, your new novel that's coming up? Are you working on that now? Yes, I am uh, working on a novel now. I actually have it finished. I'm, I'm in the revising stages. It's a departure from most stuff I've written. It's a it's more science oh, yeah? fiction. Yeah, it's so completely not like what I do have some ideas for other uh, kaiju or, or giant monster related stuff. I just haven't gotten to. Yeah, like I said, yes, I know it's a, it's an extreme departure from from what I've done. <laughs> 
hey, you know, a good story is a good story. So, you know, mm-hmm. I wish you the best of luck with it. Well, thank you. Uh, as well as everything else you've got coming up, you're, you're still doing Kaiju Corner and Scary Monsters Magazine. Are you still writing for G-Fan as well? Yeah, and not on an every issue basis, but uh, yeah. One thing that uh, the editor, J.D. Lee's, and you said you're familiar with G-Fan, he often prints my letters. Mm-hmm. For example, I sent in a, a review of the last Godzilla anime film. I contacted JD about it and asked him if I was doing a review, and he said, sure. And otherwise, like I alluded to earlier, of course, I'm really looking forward to Godzilla King of the Monsters. I think a lot of us are. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, I can hardly yeah. wait. Derek, I really appreciate you that, that you had me on. It's been great talking with you. Yeah, this has been a real treat for me and I think for the listeners. I'll make sure there are links in the show notes for this episode for people to pick up the two books that you've got out right now. You can get them through Amazon. And like I said, Scary Monsters, G-Fan, you need to read Mike's work. It's good stuff. He's one of us. Well, thank you. Mike has contributed to books like Terror of the Lost Tokusatsu Films from the files of the big book of Japanese giant monster movies or Dinosaur Memories 2, Pop Cultural Reflections on Dino, Daikaiju, and Paleo Imagery. He's also the author behind the fiction collection Atomic Drive-In, which I highly recommend, and the book, which is a must-have for all monster kids, Apocalypse Then, American and Japanese Atomic Cinema. I'll make sure there's a link to Mike's Amazon page in the show notes of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I had a blast chatting with Mike, and that's actually one of the cool things about Monster Kid Radio is that I've had an opportunity to speak with people that I respected, whose work I've enjoyed over the years when it comes to writing about these kinds of movies. I get to have them on the show, and eventually... I end up calling them a friend. Mike is definitely a friend and a friend of the show, and we'll have him back on anytime. Thanks again, Mike. a biological chain reaction, a geometrical progression of deadly mass. It had started casually, insignificantly, as momentous events often do. Look there. Two points off the port bow. The giant behemoth, the fire-spitting monster predicted in the Bible, its core a mass of lethal radiation. Rising from the depths of time, its strength enormous, its gargantuan ferocity a threat to London, to the world itself. We must find a way of destroying this creature in one piece. Judging by the beast's size, I would say it was powerful enough to drive a battleship. Of course, its tremendous electric charge is what projects the radiation. That's what makes the creature so deadly. Well, have you any concrete suggestions? Yes. First, block off the Thames.
How often has this happened to you? You're on your way home after a long day when suddenly tragedy strikes. No human mind could imagine the enormous destructive power of this maddened, killing thing. Professor, there's a big lizard back there and he's heading this way. Now get aboard! It's the kind of thing which can ruin your weekend. To prevent catastrophe, you need the Handbook for Surviving a Giant Monster Attack. This book features extensively researched methods to help you survive a giant monster event. You'll discover which vehicle you should use for making your escape, which method of counterattack is best for specific types of monsters. Hydrogen weapons, capable of wiping cities, countries off the face of the earth, are completely ineffective against this creature from the skies and what common mistakes people make while fighting back. So pick up your copy of The Handbook for Surviving a Giant Monster Attack by Anthony Wendell today on Amazon. You can thank us by surviving. Godzilla, King of the Monsters, alive, surging up from the depths of the sea on a tidal wave of terror to wreak vengeance on mankind. Godzilla, King of the Monsters, it's alive. A gigantic beast stalking the earth, crushing all before it in a cyclonic cavalcade of electrifying horror, raging through the streets on a rampage of total destruction. Godzilla, King of the Monsters, incredible titan of terror, wiping out a city of six million in a holocaust of flame. Jet planes cannot destroy it. Bombs cannot kill it. All modern weapons fail. Is this the end of our civilization? Can the scientists of the world find a way to stop this creature? For the answer, see Godzilla, King of the Monsters. You may wish to deny it, but your eyes tell you it's true. A tale to stun the mind. More fantastic than any ever written by Jules Verne. More terrifying than any ever shown on the screen. Awesome. Incredible. Unbelievable! A story beyond your wildest dreams. Dynamic violence. Savage action. Spectacular thrills. Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Fantastic beyond comprehension. Gripping beyond compare. Astounding beyond belief. The mightiest monster of them all. See Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Hello, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. When I heard that Derek and his guest Mike Bogue were going to talk about their favorite giant bug movies, I remembered an article from one of my first FMs entitled Attack of the Giant Insects. It appeared in Famous Monsters 95 from January of 1973. It mentioned 46 different movies that featured giant insects of one kind or another. From classics like them to not-so-classics like Horror of Spider Island. The article was written by Thomas Rogers. Today I want to look at what was said about the films Derek and Mike talked about, starting with the honorable mentions. Here is what was said about Black Scorpion. The Black Scorpion lived in a huge underground cavern along with a great many other giant scorpions. There were also a number of enormous prehistoric earthworms residing in the cavern. The scorpions, of course, were carnivorous. Before the movie ended, the earthworms were eaten by the scorpions, and soon afterward, the largest scorpion killed off all the others. Alone, the armored super-insect fought against Mexican troops, tanks, and helicopters. 
Only an electrified medical harpoon was able to put a stop to the monster's blood feast. Next up, we have Mothra. Mothra started out as an egg, progressed to a giant insect larva, and ended up as a huge moth after covering itself with a colossal cocoon. It attacked Japan when the two tiny females who were under its protection were kidnapped from their island home. Mothra, of course, was impervious to modern weapons. It wrecked a large part of Tokyo before rescuing the tiny twins and flying them back to their homeland. At number three for Mike, we have the monster that challenged the world. There was more than one monster that challenged the world. These giant underwater snails were left over from some prehistoric era. They were definitely anti-people, asphyxiating anyone who got within reach. The Navy used explosives to destroy all but one of the huge mollusks, and the sole survivor was later crushed to death in a canal lock. A single egg remained intact inside a Navy laboratory, and through an accident it hatched a full-grown creature right on the military base. Scalding hot water and machine gun bullets finished this one off, and the terrifying species was no more. For Derek's number three pick, we have Rodan. The first thing baby Rodan ate after hatching from his enormous egg were the prehistoric Megnorons, which were crawling around near him. These giant centipede-like flesh eaters had been terrorizing a mining town before Rodan made a meal of them, and the Japanese people were relieved when the multi-legged beast disappeared. Unfortunately, the oversized pterodactyl and his mate did far more damage than the insects would have. At number two for Mike and Derek, we have Tarantula. The voracious Tarantula was enlarged within a desert laboratory, and it continued to grow after it accidentally escaped from there. For a while, it was content with eating cattle, but then it decided to add humans to its menu. Dynamite and bullets proved useless against the behemoth. It took napalm-carrying Air Force jets to put a stop to the gargantuan. And at number one for Mike and Derek, we have Them. Them, one of the top 25 sci-fi films of all time, was the first movie dealing solely with giant insects, enormous mutated ants. These were created by America's first atomic bomb test. They were spawned in a desert in New Mexico, and most of the original colony died there killed by poisonous gas and fire. Two queen ants and some winged males escaped, though, and they soon started their own colonies on a ship at sea and under the riverbed of Los Angeles. The ship was sunk by a naval battlecruiser, and the remaining colony was annihilated by a large detachment of soldiers armed with flamethrowers and other assorted weapons. I loved this article since I first saw it back in 1973, as it acted as a checklist of great movies to see over time. I've seen about 95% of them, so I have a couple to go. And if Derek talks about any other Big Bug movies, we know that FM probably had something to say about them. beautiful girls and one lone man struggling for survival. With death, sudden, violent, and horrible lurking in the shadows. Horrors of Spider Island. Out of the night came a fate worse than death. A man's mind twisted, his brain poisoned, with an uncontrollable lust to kill. Horrors of Spider 
of Spider Island. A tale of terror that will leave you limp. So hideous and shocking, you won't believe your eyes. His hunger for victims was never satisfied. to be frightened out of your wits by the horrors of Spider Island. Dr. Tongue's I had that shot, 7129 Northeast Fremont Street, vintage goofiness from years gone by. Sci-fi and fantasy memorabilia. We specialize in things your mother threw away. And some she didn't. Dr. Tongue's Toys. That brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I want to thank you guys and gals for listening in, for downloading the show, for retweeting tweets, for sharing the posts on Facebook, and just generally being a supporter of what we do here at Monster Kid Radio. If you are a user of iTunes, please consider hopping over to the Apple Podcast side of things and leaving us an honest review. It definitely helps us out and lets me know what I'm doing right and what I might be doing wrong. I always want to make the show better and better and better. Along those lines, if you have any feedback for the show, any comments about anything that we've talked about, anything that you've liked, anything that you disliked, any comments you want to throw out there, or do you have a favorite giant big bug monster movie that we didn't talk about, email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or call and leave us a voicemail at 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. Now, this contact information is available over at our website at monsterkidradio.net, where you're going to find links to everything that we've talked about here on the show. I've already mentioned that there will be a link to Mike Moog's Amazon author page. I'll make sure there's a place for you to order copies of my book, Monster Hunter for Hire, as well as a handful of the movies that we've brought up during our conversation. If you follow the Amazon link from our website, we get a little bit of scratch back from that, you know, kind of help support the show. Speaking of supporting the show, you can become a patron over at Patreon. Either follow the link on our website or just look up Monster Kid Radio at patreon.com and you can learn how you can contribute to the show that way. And I know I'm a little behind on some of the uh, rewards for higher level uh, patrons, I apologize about that. I think I'm going to have to go in and re, 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 revise them again to make them something that I can actually you know, deliver and give you value for becoming a higher tier patron while still delivering the podcast at the level that, well, everybody has come to expect. Um, so that'll be coming up. Stay tuned for that. I'll be revising that probably sometime next month, which is May, which means it's time. To shift gears here at Monster Kid Radio, we're going to celebrate Lucha de Mayo. I did it again. Lucha de Mayo here on the show. Lucha de Mayo is when we look at luchador, monster, and genre films. I'm a big fan of these films. Santo, Blue Demon, Mimlascaras, Tiana Blas, all of them. I love these movies quite a bit. And next month, we're going to start celebrating them again. We've got some of our old friends back. We've got Mark Peterson, Frank Schildener, and Kenny's going to be joining us as well. And a few other tricks up my sleeve. 
when we dive into some of these luchador monster movies. Which one are we going to kick things off with? You're going to have to come back next week to find out, or just pay attention over at monsterkidradio.net. I'll also probably mention something on Twitter and Facebook. If you are a user of Facebook, please consider liking the page and joining the group, and, you know, follow us on Twitter, too. Oh, and while not all of it is monster-related, I'll go ahead and let you guys and gals know there will also be a link in the show notes to my eBay page. I'm starting the pay for Derek's hotel room at Monster Bash Fund over there. So I've been putting a lot of things up on eBay lately. So, you know, maybe there's something over there that you'd like to get your hands on and it would help me out. And, you know, it's win-win basically. Otherwise, I may just end up bringing an air mattress with me to the Monster Bash and setting it up underneath the Monster Kid radio table and just kind of hope that I don't get caught. Anyway, on that note, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up. Again, big thanks to the band, The Spiratones. Please check them out at thespiratones.bandcamp.com or look them up on Facebook where you can find a link to an upcoming show for them on May 18th. That's a Saturday at the King's Arms Hotel in Kirkby, Lonsdale over there in the UK. They're going to be doing a show. Starts at 9 p.m. If you're in the area, drop by and let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 Unported License. Of course, that doesn't apply to Professor Frenzy's bedtime stories. That is copyright Professor Frenzy and Jerry Green. And, of course, the song that we're playing this week, Spirotonic. Again, that belongs to the Spirotones. It's off their album, Next Stop the Moon. Check it out. It's a four-track album, and you can pick up a digital version of it for three pounds. That's less than a pound a song. How cool is that? My name is Derek M. Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week when I'm wearing my luchador mask. Ciao. (laughs) 